Did you know that within a decade, women will hold $30 trillion in investable assets? Yet somehow, only 19% of women reported feeling confident in selecting investments that align with their long-term goals. Our friends at InvestHer are out to change that. InvestHer Con is the number one premier conference for women in real estate, and it's happening June 2nd through the 4th in Austin, Texas. InvestHerCon is not just another real estate conference. It's a transformational experience focused on real estate investing, business strategies, and self-care tactics, all designed to help women take control of their financial futures. Gain the knowledge and skills you need to grow your portfolio and build a sustainable business, all while connecting with over 500 women who are playing at the same level. To learn more and to get your tickets, visit InvestHerCon.com today and use the code 100BESTEVER to get $100 off your ticket. That's InvestHer, H-E-R, Con.com, promo code 100BESTEVER to get $100 off your ticket. Every single person has the right to veto a refinancing of a bank loan or the plumber coming and making $1,000 of repairs. Basically, if it starts to become a cackling hen house, you're better off spending the money on a securities attorney. How great would it be to buy a piece of institutional quality income-producing commercial buildings? Well, now you can with Building Bits. It's not a REIT or a fund. Building Bits is a new platform for non-accredited investors where virtually anyone, regardless of income, can select a building lease to a major corporation with a guaranteed long-term lease. You can now invest in the same quality assets, which have previously only been available to institutions and wealthy individuals. Once you choose your building on BuildingBits.com, you can invest as little as $500 and receive your share of the rents while Building Bits' team of real estate pros handles all the management aspects of the building. For the first time, the big corporations in America can actually start paying you. And when the building is sold in the future, the potential appreciation is redistributed to everyone so you don't just get the rental income, but also share in the upside. Best of all, since these securities are SEC qualified, they are freely tradable immediately. The $500 minimum with no upfront fees is available for a limited time. There are great properties available nationwide with major tenants, so don't wait. Go to buybits.us today and pick your property before they're all sold out of their current inventory. That's buybits.us. That's buy, B-U-I, bits, B-I-T-S, dot U-S. The SEC offering circular is available at buildingbits.com. Best ever listeners, how you doing? Welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm Joe Fairless. This is the world's longest running daily real estate investing podcast. We only talk about the best advice ever. We don't get into any of that fluffy stuff with us today. Steve Ronaldi. How you doing, Steve? Very good. Very good. Well, I'm glad to hear that and looking forward to our conversation. Steve is an attorney specializing in private offerings of securities. He's handled private offerings of securities for 29 years now. He's based in Bethesda, Maryland. His law firm, you can go check out their website, stephenrinaldilaw.com, and we'll put that in the show notes as well, so you can just click the link. So with that being said, Steve, you want to give the best ever listeners a little bit more about your background and your current focus? Yes. I've been focused on private offerings of securities, including but not limited to real estate syndications for over 29 years. I handle the all the business law aspects of the syndication, including obviously the formation of the Delaware LLC, the writing of the operating agreement, the writing of the private placement memoranda, writing of the subscription agreement, and the filing of Form D. And recently in my practice, I've gotten more and more into the formation of opportunity zone funds. 
Yes, that is a hot topic. That's for sure. So you got 29 years of experience. Clearly, you've seen a whole lot in the industry. What has changed from what you do from a legal standpoint over the last 15 or so years? I think the biggest change is obviously Rule 505 is no longer there. What was that? Rule 505 was a rule that allowed the private offering of securities to 35 or fewer unaccredited investors with a dollar limit of $5 million. Okay. Not too many people made use of 505, and more people seem to be using 506B anyway. So that's kind of more of a technical change. Mm-hmm. 506B is superior in that it allows the same 35 or fewer unaccredited investors unlimited number of accredited investors, but an unlimited dollar amount. And seeing a lot of 506B offerings, I am seeing the occasional 506C offering as well, which is an offering to accredited investors only that permits some limited advertising. How would you describe your client profile who chooses to do 506C as in cat versus 506B as in boy? I would say 506C tends to be a much larger dollar amount, and they have relationships with people who are able to invest 200,000, 300,000, 400,000, 500,000. The 506B offerings tend to be 10, 15 people investing about 50,000, which gets you a total of 750, and the project sponsor of the syndication is going out and getting a bank loan for saying a million and a half. Mm Mm-hmm. The 506C deals tend to be much larger, and they may be buying multiple multifamily complexes. I know with 506B, you need to have a pre-existing relationship with anyone who sees your opportunity. How is pre-existing relationship defined? The SEC refuses to define it. (laughs) Isn't that fun? Taking on the kind of like... The Supreme Court, when they decided a pornography case in 1971, they kind of know it when they see it. Right, yep. Most attorneys, and even if you ask the SEC people, or they can only be the only individual people, if you talk to somebody in a RIA for a couple of months, that's fine. If you've gone together with the person before, say as co-owners on a property, you bought it for, say, a half million dollars, each put up 75000 and you borrowed 350 from a bank, that's fine. If you've done a transaction with somebody before, that's fine. But they have not really defined it, and it is a murky gray area. What, what, what I'm seeing in the 506B realm is tended to be family and friends or people in the same investment group who've been pursuing different deals, but they've been talking about deals among themselves for years. So I've never really ran into a red flag, even though it's very ill-defined. What about if someone who runs in your circle, or let's even go a step further. What about if it's your second deal and you have investors from your first deal who are very pleased about what you're doing and they say, hey, I'd like to refer my best friend Kim and they copy Kim on an email with you. Is that a pre-existing relationship? I don't think it is. But if it's not, then how do you establish that with Kim? If you've been talking to Kim over a course of about two months or so about your deals, what you're doing, this is what I've done in the past, then at that point you might be able to argue there's something. Mm-hmm. 
What are some errors you see investors make from a legal standpoint? Of course, they're not your clients, so if they were, then they wouldn't be making them. But when you just shake your head and you're like, oh my God, seriously, they did that? They didn't know they couldn't do that? The biggest mistake I've seen somebody make is saying something is not a security when it is. Yep. That is probably the most colossal blunder you could make because the consequences of violating securities law are astronomical. What are they? Well, even if you've raised less than a million dollars, the state securities agencies will come in and they will demand that you refund money to all the investors, whether you have it or not. And obviously, if you don't have it, they will go after your house, your bank accounts, and everything you have. And it's an obligation owing to the state. So the state comes first in line, not your mortgage company. So the moment your mortgage holder on your primary residence sees the state securities agency coming after you for something, they're going to panic like crazy. Mm -hmm. For starters, it is a fraud action. It's non-dischargeable in bankruptcy. And obviously, actions filed against you by the state are not dischargeable in bankruptcy either. So you have to pay the money back. And in addition to that, the state's going to fine you. That fine will easily be in the amount of their attorney's salary, health care, pension, <laughs> 401k contributions related to that time period. Paid vacation. Yep. State securities agencies are very much profit centers for state governments. Mm -hmm. And one of the easiest ways for them to make money is go after anybody who didn't follow securities laws. And to be a security, you have to have four things. It's an investment of money in a common enterprise, which it obviously is, with the expectation of a profit, and nobody invests money unless you expect a profit, and to be derived in whole or substantial part from not the investor's effort, but rather from the promoter's effort. Yep. And obviously derived in whole or substantial part, meaning if the promoter is the one negotiating the mortgage with the bank, if the promoter is the one leasing the apartments or leasing the office space or leasing the warehouse space, the promoter is the one talking to the attorneys he or she is the one opening and closing the bank accounts, talking to the real estate closing attorney, then you definitely got a security. Mm -hmm. And at that point, you have to comply with one of the various private offering exemptions. So that gets violated tons because tons of people who I talk to, they bring on investors and they're not registering the security. I agree with you. That's something that happens. For the record, all of our deals are registered, just so I get that out there. With a security, when you register it, there are costs involved in order to register it. So if you can, think of yourself as a real estate investor for a moment. You don't have a specific deal yet. You are looking at deals, and you need to decide when does it make sense financially, knowing that there will be costs involved in order to register a security, when does it make sense financially to bring in investors passively so it would be a security and I need to go to register versus doing a joint venture with some other business partners and it is not a security that needs to be registered? I would say it's not so much the money, it's the psychology and the active dynamics between the people. Mm -hmm. If you're bringing on five or six people and you're going to give them the type of control that would be in a joint venture where every single person has the right to veto a lease. Right. 
every single person has the right to veto a refinancing of a bank loan or any single person has the right to veto the plumber coming and making a thousand dollars of repairs. Basically, if it starts to become a cackling hen house, you're better off spending the money on a securities attorney mm-hmm. to go through a full blown registration. You can use the rule 504 exemption, which is still somewhat costly. You can use 506B, you can use 506C, you could even use crowdfunding, but that's the most costly and most restrictive. Good point. This is a little fuzzy in my mind, but I believe I heard this once from someone. I think they did a joint venture, and I don't think I'm getting it exactly right, but maybe you can talk about the concept of this. They did a joint venture. They said in the operating agreement that such and such management company would handle those decisions. And then either they owned that management company, so really it was this one partner was handling the decisions and they had full authority over management decisions, or they were overseeing the management company. So basically, it was a roundabout way of saying, all you other partners, you don't have to weigh in on these decisions, nor do you have the ability to because it's this management company, and then I'm the one person who has control over that. That's a security, because that sounds an awfully lot similar to the Howie case, where Howie was leasing orange groves in Florida, and it was actually Howie's management company who was operating them. Mm. SEC and the Supreme Court saw right through that and said, no, the control is coming from Howie and Howie's management company. These people out in New York and Ohio and wherever who bought into these orange grove interests, what control do they have? They're not deciding when to fertilize the ground, when to water, when to pick the oranges. So there's no control. Yeah. And it's just common sense. You said the Howie case, but does it pass the sniff test? (laughs) Exactly. Yeah, it doesn't pass the sniff test. The moment a state securities agency sees the term management company, and sees management company making all the day-to-day decisions, that's a total red flag. Mm -hmm. Cool. What are some other things that you've seen people do to either violate security law or any other interesting things that you've come across? The misdefinition deciding something isn't a security when it is, is number one. The other thing I've seen is People try to hire someone to be a finder to go get investors, and the person is not a licensed broker-dealer, and they offer to pay that person a commission based on the money raised, and that starts to run afoul of the Exchange Act of 34 because the only person who can get a commission on the sale of a security is a licensed broker-dealer. And that one's real easy to remedy. You can just make the person your direct investor relations, and you can just give them a 1% or 2% profit stake. Yep. You'd be completely in the clear if you went that way. Mm -hmm. But I see that a lot. Sometimes I'm starting to see now in the case of funds, you have to do an investment advisor filing with about 35 to 45 of the states, depending on how the private fund is structured. I see that a little. The penalties for that one aren't as astronomical as the first two. Mm Mm-hmm. State agencies will just say, okay, go ahead. You did everything else in compliance with the law. Just get yourself an investment advisor and file form ADV. Okay. With doing a fund compared to doing a one-off 506B offering, what are the costs involved in each of those? Well, the fund is going to be more expensive because if you look at the federal laws and the federal regulations, 
you're going to be okay because invariably a lot of the private funds that you and I are talking about have less than 100 investors, far less. They're down below 35 in almost all cases. So you're not going to be running a mutual fund. You don't have to worry about compliance with that whole area of law. But you do have to comply with the state laws and the state regulations, which means in addition to all the work I mentioned earlier of forming the Delaware LLC, writing the operating agreement, writing the private placement memorandum, writing the subscription agreement, and filing Form D, you're also going to have to have an investment advisor agreement, and you're going to have to have that investment advisor file Form ADV. Now, there are exceptions. Some states, if there are fewer than five or six investors and they're all accredited, you don't have to go through that rigmarole. Some go as high as 15 one exemption, New York will let you go up to $150 million without having to file. But most states, if you're doing a fund, you're looking at an investment advisor and having to file Form ADV. You're probably looking at about another $1,000 more in costs. So all in, what's the range to do the legal work for 506B? 506B all in is probably about 8500 maybe a little higher if you have investors in a lot of different states. Okay. And all in, what's the range for doing a fund? Closer to $10,000. That seems really cheap. So when you're saying the 8500 for 506B, what's that include? It includes forming the Delaware LLC and all the Delaware filing fees, plus your state qualification fee. It includes the operating agreement. It includes the private placement memorandum. It includes the subscription agreement. And it includes filing Form D in every state in which you have investors. And then once you close on the deal, don't you have to file it with the SEC? 15 days from the day you raise your first dollars from an investor. Okay. And that is included in this? Yes, that is included. What you were just saying, you know, all those things, what part is that part of? That's the Form D part that has The Form D. Got it, got it. Form D in every state. Got it. And then the 10K for the fund, what's that include? That includes all the above services that I just mentioned, plus the investment advisor agreement. And usually the investment advisor will go ahead and file Form ADV, which they're doing on their own anyway. So that extra amount reflects one more agreement that I have to write. Did I hear you correctly with the fund that you're saying usually they're under 35 investors? Yeah, I'm seeing in a private fund under 35. Now, remember the fund, you have to meet not only the 506B exemption or C exemption if they're all accredited, but Mm -hmm. 506B exemption has 35 or fewer unaccredited investors, but you also have to meet the the standards of the Investment Advisor Act and the exemptions of the Investment Company Act. Yeah, I would think that for 506C, it would be the opposite. So I'm thinking about our business. I've always done 506B. And if I did 506C, the reason why I would do it and the only reason why I would do it is to be able to publicly advertise an opportunity. That way it would bring in more investors and it likely had a lower amount, so that means I'd have even more investors in a fund or like a 506C. So I would have 100 or 200 or 300 investors versus if I was doing my normal 506B. Wow, you just hit a big shoal there. You just hit a couple of rocks. If you go at or over 100 in your fund, you now become a mutual fund. Wow, okay. 
In the Investment Company Act, you don't go over 100. Huh. You don't want to go over the 3C1 exemption. There's also a 3C7 exemption for real estate funds, but most of those as a backup tend to stay under 100. Huh. Okay. Hundreds of private offerings securities for 29 years. Anytime it's been a fun type situation, I've never had someone even come close to 100. Okay. Because they don't want to. Don't want to be a mutual fund. Because then tons of red tape and. In addition to complying with the exemptions under the 33 Act, which are 506B and C or 504 exemptions, you also have to comply with the Investment Company Act as well. So now you're throwing basically, yeah, it's all securities law, but it's two radically different areas of securities law. You're just complicating your life tremendously. <laughs> I don't want to do that. No, I mean, it's. <laughs> yeah. Okay. That's helpful. That's new information. So you might be able to tell I've never done a, a fund before. We always have done 506. Yes. That's why you've had no issue. Right. Interesting. Okay. Well, you know, one question that comes up with 506B is in boy is if you choose not to take on non-accredited investors, so no sophisticated investors, no non-accredited, even though you can take up to what, 30, 35, if you choose not to take on any, does that benefit you from a regulatory standpoint in any form or fashion if you're only taking on accredited investors and in 506B? Where it can really benefit you is under the fund if you're doing a fund. That's where it can really benefit you because in about 15 states, you can argue you don't need an investment advisor. I'm talking about just 506B. You still want to give people the same private placement memorandum. If you look at the black letter of the regulation – It says unaccredited investors have to get a private placement memorandum. But if you look at the Securities Act itself or the authority where the regulations come from, it says all investors have to receive all material information. Hmm. The practical matter, if you have to give all investors all material information, you're not saving yourself any time or money by saying, oh, I'll limit this to accredited only and not pay for writing a PPM. Because if the deal goes sour... Accredited investors will sue you anyway under the Securities Act saying you didn't disclose all material information to me. Right. You didn't tell me what the rental rate was. You didn't tell me that you had to pay uh, prepayment penalties on the mortgage. You didn't tell me that the inspection said you needed a new roof. They'll find something, anything. And it's pretty easy in a real estate investment for a judge to say, yeah, something is material. And you didn't tell them that. You don't derive much benefit. Okay. So if you are doing 506B, assuming that you have the disclosures in there, which you should if you're doing 506B, you don't really have an additional benefit from a regulatory standpoint by only bringing on accredited investors. You could also fill in some of the non-accredited spots. None at all. Oh, sophisticated. Right. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Yeah, I forgot I was talking to attorney. Sophisticated investors, you can fill in those 35 spots of sophisticated investors. The trick on that is sophistication has never clearly been defined. I mean, well, <laughs> my practice has been a person knows something about real estate investing. They've done some flips before. Yeah. How do you qualify someone? If you have a 506B offering and they say, hey, I'm a sophisticated investor, how do you qualify them? Okay, are you an attorney who's dealt with either business law or real estate law in the past? Are you an accountant who's had business or real estate clients? Do you have any investment properties? Have you participated in any investment in the past? Have you at least gone to a RIA actively 
openly and gone through all their educational sessions the last couple of months. Does it have to be recent? Or if they like, yeah, I went to one like two, three years ago. Developments change. I would feel more comfortable with recent. Okay. Usually what I'm encountering is most of the people who are investors in these deals have invested in past deals, or if they haven't, they own investment properties. Sure. They're basically looking to basically up their game. Yep. Because most of the attorneys I come across are accredited and accountants, I don't know about most of them that, well, most of the investors that come across are accredited because they know we only work with accredited investors. But I'd say owning investment properties, that's going to qualify a whole lot of people to be sophisticated because usually from my experience, you don't want to passively invest in a apartment community or some other 506B offering unless you have some sort of real estate experience because you won't know what the heck that is in if you don't have some sort of real estate experience, you won't, you won't even be having the conversation with the syndicator if you don't already have some sort of real estate experience. From exactly. My, from my experience. Cool. Well, this has been so informative. Anything else that you think we should mention as we close out here that we haven't discussed? Yes, the new development in opportunity zones. And I'm starting to see people coming in requesting that I set up opportunity zone funds. And that is obviously you've got an addition to securities law. You've got the tax law shoals as well. I'm starting to see that more and more getting more and more questions. Yep. And that will keep on coming at you, I'm sure. So you do set that up for anyone who's looking to secure that, to create a fund or something then. Absolutely. If they want to go the opportunity zone fund direction, I can definitely assist them. Well, how can the best ever listeners learn more about what you got going on and get in touch with you? Okay. Well, obviously they can email me at my email, stephendrinaldi at msn.com. An even better way is to go on my website, stephenrinaldilaw.com, and look at the private offerings of securities page and see all the work I've done. My recent deals are on there. And definitely another thing is obviously to call me directly at 240-481-2706. Great stuff. Learned a lot. Loved this conversation. I'm sure anyone who is passively investing or actively putting together deals got something from this, probably many things. So Steve, thank you so much for being on the show. Hope you have a best ever day and we'll talk to you soon. Thank you very much, Joe. Wouldn't it be nice to buy a piece of institutional quality, income-producing commercial real estate buildings for as little as $500? Now you can with Building Bits. Building Bits is a new platform where virtually anyone, regardless of income, can select a building leased to a major corporation with a guaranteed long-term lease. The $500 minimum with no upfront fees is available only for a limited time. There are great properties available nationwide with major tenants, so don't wait. Go to buybits.us today and pick your property before they're all sold out of the current inventory. That's buybits.us. That's buy, B-U-I, bits, B-I-T-S, dot U-S. The SEC offering circular is available at buildingbits.com. Best ever listeners, we have launched bestevercauses.com. That's bestevercauses.com. We profile a nonprofit or a cause that is near and dear to our heart. Get the word out about their cause and also donate money towards their cause. If you'd like to, one, learn more about the causes that we're profiling, we do one a month, then go to bestevercauses.com. And if you want to suggest a cause that we profile that is near and dear to your heart, 
then go to besteverCauses.com and there's a little form at the bottom of the page where you can submit one and we'll check it out.